This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree, coming to you live from the Marriott Marquis here in Manhattan. It's the site of the Jacobs Levy Center's Frontiers in Quantitative Finance Conference. We're joined by Professor Siegel, our co-host, author of and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a supervisor of Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sell investment products, and the views are guests of their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. It's going to be a great show today. Great to be back live in at the conference here, the Jacobs Levy Conference. Uh, we're going to have Professor Siegel and I are going to be on stage later talking about the sixth edition of Stocks for the Long Run. We're going to be talking with two of the award-winning professors here on their research on momentum investing. Uh, but Professor, we always like to get your take on what's been happening. We've got some pressure in the market, some, a lot of questions about the Fed, inflation, What's your read of, of the latest? We have, we have uh, what's called volatility, which is the euphemism that commentators use for a down market. Um, uh, clearly, what, what set the market down was the consumer price index on Tuesday. Um, let, let me recap what I've been saying for a long time. Uh, the way the consumer price index is constructed is extremely lagged, uh, particularly in the area of housing, which is 45% of the core uh, CPI index, which is what uh, concerned uh, the Fed and most investors. That's, that is going to continue to go up for months to come, even as on-the-ground housing prices are coming down. And uh, we will see that, um, if not this next month when the Shower Index comes out at the end of this month, but in the, in the following month, uh, and if you talk to brokers, you'll, you'll, they'll just say, you know, prices are going down. We're actually going to get housing starts next week. We're also going to get the uh, NAHB Sentiment Index, which I had mentioned earlier, uh, took the biggest uh, three-month decline in its history uh, last month to show you how sharply the economy the, uh, has deteriorated. The um, uh, 30-year fixed is now at 6.5%, um, which is uh, given that since the pandemic, housing prices have risen nationwide 40%, and mortgage rates have risen by over 100%. If you factor those into the cost of the housing. Now, we know that that's not how the government actually does that because they don't use the actual price of the home directly. But uh, it it shows you why the housing market is in very serious uh, difficulty. Nonetheless, um, uh, we had a very good claims report on on Thursday. It shows you the labor market is is good. Let's go go to rates. They're they're hitting highs or near highs, especially the two-year. Um, uh, we have a funds rate of 233 now. I looked at the April 2023 funds rate, um, and it's 445 April. Now, so that is over 200 basis points of tightening that is built in. Uh, we also know, by the way, that the, the funds rates are, because of the beta of the funds rates against the risk market, uh, the funds rates are actually underestimates of what the market expectation is of what, how high the funds rate will go. So there is a huge amount of uh, tightening that is now being built in. It is my feeling we don't need that amount of tightening. Um, uh, I think there's fear on the part of market participants the Fed will over-tighten got Sternlich talking on CNBC who talked about how things are slowing, people today talking about how things are slowing. Um, and there's a worry if the Fed just looks at year-over-year CPI or housing CPI and doesn't see what's going on, they will over-tighten and we will have a recession 
um, more serious than maybe the, the shallow recession we had in the first half of the year. In conjunction with that, we have GDP uh, today, the Atlanta Fed marked down its third quarter GDP estimate to half a percent. Most, uh, except for one or two, observers are now below one percent for third quarter GDP. Uh, our third quarter ends in two weeks. Um, uh, this will, given the labor market uh, employment increase, will then continue to give us a sharply negative productivity growth of the, as we mentioned on this show, it's the sharpest decline in productivity in history since 1947 um, by an order of magnitude of two or more. Uh, that has not been discussed by the Fed, nor explained by the Fed, nor, nor even explained by the Biden administration, etc. Um, I think we should study what has happened uh, to productivity. Um, nonetheless, uh, economy is barely growing. Uh, labor market is strong, but people aren't working, and they're working less. Um, so GDP is not growing, and their productivity is collapsing. Um, but I think this... I think the Fed n needs to see what this rise in rates is really going to do and um, what it has done. So now people are starting to think back-to-back -back 75 basis point hikes. That's getting to that, to that 450 that you were talking about. Is, is there anything that you think that will, from the narratives you hear them talking about, is there anything that will get them to change the tone? Well, the data ch changes their will change their tone. I mean, you know, they make these projections. We're going to, next week, we're going to get the dot plot, we'll, which will tell us, and, and I'm, everyone will shake and, 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 and tremor over, oh, my God, look at how tight they're going to be next year and all that. Let, let me remind you, as I did on the show last week, that a year ago's meeting, at exactly the September meeting a year ago, they said that for 2022, half of the participants no increase from zero is necessary on the Fed funds. Five said we'll have to go to 25 basis points. And three, the most hawkish, said we may have to go to 50 basis points. I mean, <laughs> and now they're going to go to 400. To show you, do they really know what they're going to do? Absolutely not. Um, should we take their intentions it depends on who molds their opinion of looking at what the data is actually going to show. But uh, they certainly did not follow through last year. The, the big news overnight was FedEx down 20% on, on their profit miss. Do you think, and, and people are abstracting them being so tied to the global economy, is that a sign on the global economy? Is that a sign on their own profits in, in your view? Well, uh, I've had two estimates. One, this is 60% FedEx, 40% macro. One said, no, it's 70% FedEx, 30. Yeah. About two-thirds is FedEx, which has high costs and has not been performing so as well as UPS. Um, but I think they're, they're talking about what the macro environment is, and particularly, you know, they're talking about what's going on in China, which is affecting their, their revenues. Well, very good, Professor. I think we'll turn it over to our guests here today. Uh, so we have, thank you, uh, Professors Sheridan Titman and Nersman Jagadish. We're talking about their award-winning, they're the winners of the 2021 Wharton Jacobs Levy Prize for Quantitative Financial Innovation for the Research on Momentum Investing. Professor Jagadish is the Dean's Distinguished Chair in Finance at Emory's Gazetta Business School. Professor Titman holds the Walter McAllister Centennial Chair in Financial Services at the University of Texas. At Austin's McComb School of Business. Welcome to the program. Welcome to Behind the Markets. Thank you very much for inviting us. Thank you for inviting us here. Any comments on the markets that the professor talked about before we get into your research? Anything that you guys want to comment on, on on what's been happening? Yeah, I would like to add one thing. Uh, inflation currently is fairly high. But one thing which is puzzling is if you look at uh, the difference between the yield on a five-year tips and five-year nominal treasury bills. The difference is usually uh, taken as an indication of market's expectation of inflation over that horizon. That difference is less than 3%, I yes. think, right and, now. And on the 10, too. Uh, uh, on the which 10. shows you 
that inflation, you're absolutely right, Jagadish, uh, the inflation expectations are, are very well anchored. Yeah, so and that should not be a concern of, in fact, we actually got some more survey evidence that shows that they're anchored, uh, direct survey besides that, those spreads. So that should not be a big concern of the Fed. Um, you know, uh, what, what was most disappointing to me about his speech at Jackson Hole was, you know, he said, you know, inflation is tough and we're going to stand against it. He gave no, well, what, uh, what, what, what are you going to be looking at to say we're getting near our target or not? Because the sensitive commodity prices and the housing prices and, the, and those goods that are more market determined are going down. They're not going up at all. Um, now, we have wages that are still going up, although they're going up much less than inflation, and that's partly to do with the collapse of productivity. They should go up less than inflation if the productivity is collapsing. Um, uh, some of it is catch-up. They were in contracts that anticipated a much lower inflation uh, than it occurred, uh, so the firms actually you know, scooped up a... Uh, so to speak, a capital gain on a fixed contract over there. So there is still pressure, certainly on the wage end, but on the sensitive commodities and on the asset prices, you really, you really, and I wish he would have said, you know, what, what I think would rally the market next week if he said, we did 75, and I think 75, by the way, is pretty much in the bag. I don't think it's going to be 100. We're not, we're not going to, we're not going to get 100, but I think we are going to get 75. Um, if he makes a statement, I, uh, we are beginning to see some signs of progress against the inflation by looking at housing or what a, you know oil, which is, is you know way down. It's below the level actually that uh, uh, before the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, uh, if he makes comments like that, that as I think is what the market is looking for. They're looking for that. You're not going to over-tighten, are you? Well, or let, let me, I want my hope up. You're not going to over-tighten. Because it's actually my belief um, that the, the neutral Fed funds rate actually, um, neutral real Fed funds rate is actually a zero or below. Uh, they think it's a half a percent, but I actually think it's negative, um, which means that they're already into that sort of tightening phase given that forward-looking inflation on a market basis isn't really very high at all now. Yeah, I absolutely agree with what you're saying. I think the uh, uh, stress about the short-term inflation and its imp long-term implications have been a little bit overstated. Uh, if you're, Just to give you a perspective, for five years, the expected inflation is on average 3%, and today it's 9%, so the market is expecting it to drop pretty precipitously yeah. within a short horizon. So, yeah, I hope it's not, the effect yeah. doesn't overshoot. Uh, that, that's exactly right. And, and, and that should be of comfort to the, the Fed chairman. Um, I mean, if, let's face it, if he waits until the year-over-year year inflation goes down to 2%, we are all in big trouble. Um, the money supply, uh, M2 money supply, uh, as, as I've been talking about the show, which is what alerted me to all the inflation that I knew we were going to have in 2020, um, and wrote about um, has been declining since March. Um, it's one. Uh, uh, it's one of the rarest five-month declines, uh, six-month declines that we've ever had in history in the post-war period. So the money supply growth, which was so excessive in 20 and 20 and 2021, has not only has totally come to a halt, a screeching halt. And uh, the dollar is so high, that's another sign of tightness, really, the level of the dollar, the, the, the complete uh, collapse of money supply growth. These are signs that the market and the Fed has really put on the screws. So I would expect um, part of the problem is just uncertainty about inflation rather than the expected level of inflation. Do you have any thoughts on that, Jeremy? Yeah, there is a tremendous amount of uncertainty about inflation because, you know, when we were between one and a half and two and a half for, what, 35 years, and then suddenly you, you break out into a year over year, eight, nine. Now, believe it or not, my feeling is as if the government correctly did the housing rather than the lag way they did it, we actually had 10 to 12% year over year 
inflation. So they understated past inflation. They're going to catch up in the statistics over the next six or nine months. But clearly, when you go from a one and a half to two and a half to double digit, really, uh, your, your uncertainty suddenly explodes. Right. And uh, when uncertainty explodes, people wait to invest. And when people are waiting to invest, um, that has ramifications. Prices the go economy. down. Yeah. <laughs> prices are low. <laughs> Well, let's reintroduce our guests here. We're going to be talking with Professor Sheridan Titman, Narasman Jagadish. Uh, Professor Titman, maybe we could turn the, the conversation to your papers on momentum investing yeah. and maybe sort of define how did you first get interested in momentum investing from your original paper almost 30 years ago and, and from where the, the research came from then to now, today. Maybe give us an overview of, of how you see the big issues. Okay. Um, back to the roots of the um, Research on momentum, both Jagadish and I were independently looking at different things um, from slightly different perspectives. I was um, originally looking at mutual fund performance, and I was doing work um, jointly with Mark Rinblatt, my colleague at UCLA mm -hmm. at the time. And um, to evaluate mutual funds, it's very important to have good benchmarks. And to have good benchmarks, it's very important to understand how mutual funds invest. And um, one thing I noticed is that mutual funds, on average, or at least a large number of them, tended to buy past winners. And if mutual funds were buying past winners, I wanted to know whether a more passive strategy um, in terms of investing in past winners, whether that would perform by itself. And if that was the case, I needed to benchmark that when looking at the mutual funds. And I'll hand it over to Jagadish. In his dissertation, he was looking at returns, return reversals and continuations. And um, you can explain that, Jagadish. Yeah, it happened by chance that we had common interests, but we are coming from different angles. And we were both at UCLA at that time. So it was a lunchtime conversation where at that time, going back 30 years, so to give you some perspective, the prevailing theme seemed to be that what goes up comes down. So, because an earlier study said... Uh, Thakwar's work. Thakwar's work. Was that it? Yeah. Taylor and... Debont and Taylor. Debont and Taylor. Debont and Taylor. So they said long horizon, what goes up, there's a return reversal. And then in my own work, I said within one month, if you look at it just past month returns, next month it tends to reverse. Uh, so... The prominent theme was return reversals, and Sheridan was intrigued. Why are mutual funds doing something differently, and why is that they seem to be performing well? Uh, are they going the wrong direction, but still hitting the target? So I looked back at my dissertation. I said, when you look at the whole picture, it's the long end and the short end where there seems to be reversal, but in the intermediate horizons, which seems to be the typical holding periods of... Uh, mutual funds, which he was looking at with Mark Grinblatt. Is like about a year or about how long? They, give, they a, give our audience a little bit of an idea of how long that might be. Typical mutual fund holding period is about 6 to 12 months. I, I think yeah. mm -hmm. Sheridan uh, looked at it closely as well, So, which means they turn over their portfolio 100 times or uh, around that. You know, it's a little bit more between 100 and 150 times every year which translates into holding period of 6 to 12 months. Uh, so if they buy the stock on average, they'll keep 6 to 12 months. So we said, okay, maybe it's the horizon that they are interested in. And uh, it, it was consistent with some of the results I was finding in my dissertation. I was looking at how returns this month are related to a series of returns in the past month. And then when I looked at that, actually it was actually positive, positively related. So we decided, okay, we'll directly take a look at the horizons that momentum the mutual funds are interested in and directly see how they help. Uh, so that, that's how we got started on it. Well, I have a really interesting question, though. Um, uh, and, and, and your finding is stupendous, and we're going to talk about how important momentum is as a factor. Um, but the, the active mutual funds had not been outperforming the average. So um, if they had been doing that and it had been a positive factor, shouldn't they have outperformed? Um, well, we, we, again, it's, it's all a matter of how we benchmark. And um, you're correct. On average, 
mutual funds were underperforming the market. And of course, part of that was cost. A, a, a big part of that was cost. And in my research with Mark Rinblatt, um, we were looking at various ways of looking at the returns. And we were, in fact, looking at returns um, of what we called hypothetical mutual fund portfolios, where we were buying um, the, the positions that were reported in their quarterly holdings and buying them without transaction costs mm. and comparing those returns to returns of benchmarks without transaction costs. In that sense, it's a, a more fair um, comparison. Correct. And one thing we did find was that for the aggressive growth funds, um, using our benchmarks and that comparison, the aggressive growth funds were beating the market and those were the funds that were in fact buying on momentum. And in fact, you know, if you look at growth stocks, um, growth stocks have higher momentum as well. So my conclusion was it was that sort of momentum buying by the aggressive growth funds that were in fact generating the um, systematic abnormal performance. So one of the big questions is um, why? Um, is it an inefficiency in the market or um, and in, in inefficiency I include uh, investor behavior that quote is not rational or not completely rational or is it related to uh, some risk that um, I mean that's always the, the, the question one asks when one finds a factor uh, that beats the market, right? Is it is it is it is it is it is it behavioral? Is it is it mispricing, um, uh, or is it due to certain constraints, or, or, or are there true risks? Um, and I've known that you've done some very recent research that um, um, shed some light on that issue. So, would you like to describe that? Yeah, I mean certainly. I think as financial economists, especially when we started this work, everybody, okay, markets are efficient. Why, if there are some predictable anomalies based on what we can see in the market, why doesn't everybody jump in and make that anomaly go away? So clearly there is some, uh, market anomalies are self-destructive, okay, because a lot of people jump in. In the case of momentum, it's still very puzzling because we've looked at risk from very many different angles and uh, they don't seem to be driving it uh, so there must be some systematic behavioral biases, not at the individual level, for it to affect market prices. So th that's, that's one of the big reasons why uh, momentum research caught on with the academic community. What are those biases? Now, and I, I've also got to tell you, the momentum strategy by itself is pretty risky. The volatility of the momentum strategy, although you take long positions in some stocks and short positions in some stocks, uh, the volatility is almost maybe sometimes bigger than the market volatility. Okay, so that's, it's hard to use that as a singular signal and make consistent profits after you turn over your portfolio. Sometimes they drop. So maybe that volatility, and because it cannot, as a standalone, people find it very difficult to arbitrage that. I think that's possibly why it's, it's been... I can I'll present some evidence today where it's also over the last 30 years, it's still there. It, it, we're going to talk a little bit about how factor, because uh, I've actually dealt with that in, in, in my book, um, uh, in, in the sixth edition, how, how some of the factors have changed. Um, uh, now, there, there are people out there, well, first of all, the, let's give a bottom line. Uh, from, I guess, if you go back to, you know, 1926 to the crisp data or even, you know, let's say the mid-60s or 50s, momentum is the single most powerful factor. Is that, I mean, uh, you know, in terms of if you rank any value, any other factor, um, that, sh that, that opens your eyes. I mean, you know, because there are, 
are, there's a dozen factors out there. I mean, there used to be small stocks, large stocks, value stocks, those were factors and factors, and all of a sudden here comes momentum that beats the pants off of, of all of those. So it, 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 it's really tempting. Before you answer, let me just reintroduce our guests. We have Professor Sheridan Titman, Narasimhan Jagadish, two of the academics who have done the most work on momentum investing here broadcasting live from the Jacobs Levy Conference in New York at the Merritt Marquis. Professors, go, go back to the... To no, the yeah, so I was... Uh, you, we, we're talking about something that is, you know, if you do factor investing, and we know that, I mean, Vanguard has factor funds and others now. I mean, it's... it's Factor funds have moved from the hedge fund, the rarity of you know the the very wealthy investors, now down to the common investor. Um, so this is uh, these are you know these are very important about um, uh, should do you think investors should tilt towards factors uh, or or vanilla. Indexing, let me ask you both, have you yourselves moved into mo more uh, tilt towards momentum uh, portfolios as a result of your research? Um, well, I guess I'm, I'm not what I would consider an active investor, so I'm not actively, um, you know, doing what I'm preaching in some sense. Um, it takes a lot of time, um, it takes expertise and, and so on. I've, I've done a little bit. I've dabbled just a bit. Um, now it's easier. As the professor said, there are now momentum factor <laughs> funds you that make go, it easier. You could go Check for it. Do you, what about you? Bob, about yeah, you? I, I have tilted somewhat towards momentum, but the only thing about these factor funds is their fees and transaction costs are pretty large. So whenever you're looking at these ETFs, especially the ones that track momentum, you have to keep in mind that they have high turnover. So unlike the value funds or growth funds, which don't have as much of a turnover, here you've got to be careful about that. And the ETF fees are also very large. So that is actually compared with the other, uh, the other ETFs. So that, you know, my aversion to paying large fees, <laughs> because of that, I don't... It's, typically it's, go into those large fee yeah, funds. Well, let me, let me talk about one of the rebalancing themes, one of the biggest, and, and I think it's around 20 basis points, which is not that high in, in, in very high terms. They only rebalance twice a year. Your research rebalanced monthly, I believe. Uh, and, and when you think about momentum strategy itself, is there an optimal rebalancing frequency? Do you think if, if people are rebalancing twice a year as a momentum strategy, that, that could work? Well, the... Uh, you know, sometimes rebalancing, you're losing the uh, predictability because there's more predictability in the shorter term and the longer term. Some of the momentum ETFs trade much, much more. They're, uh, you know, it depends on the type of momentum funds, whether they are very passively to, uh, basically replicating the index or whether they have more of a short-term approach. Yeah, if it's just 20 basis points, uh, that's pretty good. But again, every time they trade, they tend to... In, which you don't Index see, costs. they have transaction costs as well. So, yeah, I did tilt a little bit towards the momentum portfolio, but overall, yeah, some of them do quite well. So I have done that, and not only that, I mean, just because I did momentum, it was not the only momentum portfolio, but some of these style factors, like the quality factor portfolios, uh, they are quite interesting and worth looking at. Now, I want to note that Managing these factors independently is really a bad idea um, because of the transaction costs. So there's a lot of different factors that are likely to affect expected returns, and you wouldn't want to manage them as separate portfolios. Um, your transaction costs will be much lower if you manage them all together. Okay. Integrated multi-factor sounds like what you're yeah. most yeah. interested in. Yeah. That's why I'm saying it sort of does take special expertise. It's not something that I can do myself, um, because I would want to take into account all sorts of various factors and, um, and basically manage them holistically. I do, I do remember that uh, our good friend Cliff Asnes wrote a paper about, and he's excited about momentum, and he said, oh, transactions costs do not m nullify the momentum factor. Um, well, the transaction costs aren't super high if it's just one part 
of a multi-factor model. Mm-hmm. If you're just managing only on momentum, um, you're going to have transaction costs and you're going to have a, a lot of risk. If it's just one part of a bigger strategy, um, it's definitely something that should be added. So building on that, you know, one thing I also think is investors who are looking at each signal, in some of the consulting work where I have done work with the funds trying to say, okay, what would be a quant strategy that they can implement? Momentum is certainly one of the signals, but that's not the only signal because then you don't, you get uh, the sharp ratios take a hit because of the volatility. So you've got to bl- blend in all the uh, other signals as well to develop a combined portfolio. We're going to have to take a break in a second, but one of the, the questions, you mentioned volatility and being, volatility being high on the momentum. One of the other things people talk about is sort of one of the most prone to crashes or sort of momentum crash where it does really well and then has very, very large drawdowns. Is there something about momentum investing as a factor that makes it prone to those crashes in your view? Yeah. One thing about momentum is basically it buys the losers and sells the winners. So when the market goes down, especially in the high volatile periods, the market goes down, the losers are the ones that are most sensitive to the market, and they get closer to bankruptcy. So when the market rebounds with a high volatility there, it just takes off. The ones that are closer to bankruptcy, you know, people who are looking at it, they think about it as more option-like uh, because their equity value is diminished. When they bounce up, they bounce up much higher. So the return-based portfolios by construction pick high volatility on both sides. The winners and losers are the ones that tend to be more volatile than the middle. So that, that's the reason why, especially when the bound, market volatility we saw in 2010, 9, and way back in our paper, we document what happened during the Great, uh, great uh, Depression and uh, bounce back. Momentum didn't do well because when the market goes down, we tend to pick the high beta stocks. So I think that is somewhat unique to past return-based strategies uh, because of how returns move with the market. Yeah, and you, you need to also note that um, the momentum strategies will sometimes get you very, very concentrated in one industry. So in 2009, um, the losers were these banks, and you're just very, very concentrated in banks. And then with the bailout, the banks you know, popped back up and the momentum strategy got killed. Hmm. We're going to continue this conversation. We're going to drill into more research on the momentum effect. We're broadcasting live from the Jacobs Levy Quant Conference here at the Marriott Marquis in Manhattan. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets. We've got Professor Siegel live here at the conference. Uh, Professor, we had a great conversation kicking off on their seminal paper on momentum. I know you want to bring it back to why does momentum work and some of their their latest research on that? Yeah. Uh, Again, just to review for people who may have joined us, momentum is the tendency of stocks that have been winners over the previous 6 to 12 months to continue in that direction in the next 6 to 12 months. And uh, at least when you don't put in transactions cost, it is the most powerful positive factor uh, that we have in the historical data. Um, And uh, I I recall uh, that Eugene Fama once said, momentum is the most embarrassing (laughs) factor uh, phenomenon for the efficient markets because this is not supposed to happen. Um, So I'm going to ask both of our guests um, why... uh, do you think it happens? What does the research show about uh, the various explanations that have been proffered for the mon- momentum phenomenon? Okay, well, I, I would argue that most of the evidence seems to support the idea that it's some sort of underreaction, and I would say underreaction to information that's generated in the trading process. So people have private information. Um, some people are more informed than others. Um, the people that have, say, favorable information about a stock, they buy the stock and push the price up. Okay, other people on the sidelines should basically see this happen and continue to push up the stock pretty quickly. Um, but the evidence seems to suggest that that process takes longer than Jagadish and I would have originally thought it would take. 
And you did a paper recently on China that talked about the evidence in the A-share market versus the Hong Kong market. And, right. and what that, do you want to give a brief summary of, of what that paper said? Okay, well, part of our theory is that the composition of the people in the market are going to affect the return patterns. And we thought that the China A-share market and B-share market provides uh, a great experiment for understanding how the differences in the investor bases are going to affect return patterns. Okay, the China A shares and the B shares, these are shares on identical companies. Okay, so the shares have exactly the same cash flow rights that will receive the same dividends. Um, they have the same governance rights, not a lot, um, but to the extent that shareholders can affect the governance of the firm, the A shares and the B shares are, are equivalent. Okay, so the only difference is the investors that are trading the stocks. And what we find is that for the B shares, okay, we see momentum of the type Jagadish and I looked at, 6 to 12-month momentum, um, but no short-term reversals. Okay? In contrast, the A market, um, again, this is a market trading the exact same stocks, but those stocks don't show any momentum but show fairly strong monthly short-term reversals. Mm. Okay. And, and that would support the underreaction hypothesis? Okay, so the suggestion is, is that the A market is dominated by fairly unsophisticated retail investors. Okay, so they're trading on what we would call noise, and since they're trading on noise, their trades are not going to have long-term effects on the value of the stocks. It's going to basically, in some sense, cause the stocks sometimes to go up and then reverse, sometimes go down and reverse. Okay? The B market is much more sophisticated and much more institutional. Now, the, the, the part that I always found counterintuitive is you think, well, momentum is a, you know, a measure of market inefficiency, and we would expect the less sophisticated markets to then show more momentum. Um, actually, the evidence is that the more sophisticated, the more what we would think of as more efficient markets actually exhibit more momentum. Okay, so it's, again, evidence of sophisticated investors underreacting hmm. to the information of their counterparts. Yeah, I, I wanted to, since you mentioned other markets, um, you know, one when you guys found momentum for the U.S. market, of course, it was applied to international uh, markets also. Right. And there was a lot of talk about that notable exception of Japan not having momentum. Right. And one of the very few, if not maybe only, uh, markets that didn't. Do you, do you have any... Uh, Insights yeah. into that. Yes, and and it was interesting because um, actually, I was when Jagadish and I were originally working on this. I was t going to take my first trip to Hong Kong and present, and I said, Jagadish, they want to see something Asian, and we got data on Japan, and we looked at it, and we didn't see anything, and it was like, gee, maybe our results aren't as robust as we thought because we'd only looked at Japan and the United States. I guess we had Australia at the beginning. Um, and yes, we did not see any evidence of Japan. But it's strong in Europe and elsewhere. Yeah. It was very strong in Europe. It's very strong in Australia. And emerging markets. Um, some emerging markets, yes. Some no. Um, you think it worked during the, the 70s and 80s as the Japan bubble was kind of inflating? And then it's been a 30-year bear market in Japan? No. that I mean, again, the momentum is more of a cross-sectional thing. You know, it's within the market. Um, some stocks go up, some go down. The ones that go up tend to repeat, and the ones that go down tend to continue. But maybe Jer um, Jeremy is intimating that the bubble in Japan, could it have made investors less willing to chase those stocks that have risen because they have memories of the reversal that occurred earlier? Uh, I don't know. I, During the growth phase, it might have been working in the you know, 70s and 80s. That's quite possible, but along the lines of what you're saying, maybe when they're growing that fast, 
Uh, there were papers in the U.S. saying that uh, bubble is building there. So maybe it's a level of less sophistication. The level of sophistication may be more closer to the China A shares than the B shares. Mm-hmm. Now, along the lines we were saying about underreaction, you know, we like to look at some empirical evidence. So basically, we did. Uh, I updated uh, the uh, data, and one of the things you'll say is: suppose people have stocks are going up, but they're not sufficiently optimistic about the past winners and stocks going down, they're not sufficiently pessimistic about the past losers. So that would be the underreaction. So the question is, how do you empirically test that? One of the things we did on our paper, and which I'll update the results now, this for a more recent period as well, basically we said, okay, when would that, at some point, investors have to correct their biased beliefs and the correction would take place more strongly when there's a concentrated dose of information that hits the market. And when does it happen? So you just look at around three days around earnings announcement, the day before, the day of the announcement, the day after. A lot of momentum uh, during that period. The winners do pretty well, and the losers do poorly. So that's the day in which we can see the market price reaction that investors are correcting their biases, in the direction we would predict based on momentum plus underreaction. And uh, I think that's the, uh, within the U.S., I find that to be the strongest evidence that maybe there's some biases which are being corrected. So that's the underreaction story for which we, this evidence supports. One, one of the things that, uh, that Jeremy and I did in, in the book in the sixth edition is I took all the factors and I measured them from well, 26 or 65, to 2006. And then from 2006 to the present, and we, we, you know, basically through last year, um, and all factors, including the momentum factors, have done much less well um, in the last, fifth, that's a 15-year period. Um, virtually all, I mean, some, many of the decline, I mean, even the momentum factor has not done well. Is that uh, some of the learning you're talking about, or, or what, what, what do you think about that, Jagadish? I completely agree with that. I mean, this uh, momentum, the sample period that, uh, what's surprising is 15 years may not be long enough. Yeah. Okay, so because we would think that we documented that in 93, and it's, then we updated the paper in 2001, and it was still there. So what I looked at just recently, 2008 and nine, those were very, very bad years for momentum. This is one of those momentum crashes that you're talking about. Uh, but I, when I look at the last 30 years, this earnings effect that I mentioned to, to you and also the overall momentum effect, they're still there which is very surprising because the whole idea of the efficient market hypothesis, which is very surprising for us, we said once we documented it, we said, no, it's going to go, go down. But it's taking much longer. But I, can, I subscribe to the idea that it's going to decline over time because if these are behavioral biases, by definition, you know, people learn over time and it, it is going to go down. Well, I agree with that. One thing we found in our book that a lot of the... So uh, phenomenon like the January effect has completely disappeared right. in the data over the last uh, 20 years, and there's been several others that have disappeared. And is it the result of arbitrage and people knowing about it and therefore uh, buying uh, early or not? Uh, also, I, I, it's interesting, if you do a factor graph of, um, from 1926 onward with the CRISP, um, it goes up and then it crashes and then in 19, what was it, 40-something, they all go back to about zero. And then they start up after that. So there's like a cycle, it's up, and then it's out. Now, you're right, 2006, 7, 8 were bad for momentum, but it's, in the data, I said it's still been on the weaker side compared to earlier since then. Um, and, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, as it has been for all the factors that we've actually uh, investigated. In fact, I think the only factor that has approached as strong as before was uh, 
the so-called profitability factor is, has, has maintained it. But when you look at 12 or 15 factors and that's the only one, you begin to wonder how, how, how strong the, the effect uh, you know, might be into the future. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things is the ones that are easier to arbitrage, they go away faster. For example, I was also looking at one-month reversal, which was very strong in my original paper, but it's pretty much gone away because that's much easier to arbitrage out, lower volatility. Uh, so you're right. The more people get into this market and arbitrage it out, the fact of profitability will go down. Let me just reintroduce our guests quickly. We're talking with Professors Titman and Jagadish on some of the original seminal papers on momentum investing. We're here at the Jacobs Levy Quant Conference in New York. Uh, and Professor Titman, you were talking about the industry effects of momentum that you can get very concentrated. Have, uh, maybe there's a question on how you can define momentum. Is, have you looked at it within industries as one of the ways to solve for the industry concentration? Or is there other things on that are important as people specify momentum a lot of different ways? There's sort of look-back periods and how people define it. Is any sort of best advice for people as, as they think about these two factors? Yeah, I think um, building portfolios without the industry concentration I think is very important. If you're using this as sort of one factor that you're really concentrating on, um, you can measure momentum by looking at um, not ranking stocks by their past returns over the last 6 to 12 months, but by their past alphas, you know, how well the stock has done um, relative to the market, taking into account the differences in beta. Um, when you do either, you know, net of industry or um, alpha, you're going to get a more stable momentum portfolio, and you're not going to be as subject to those momentum crashes. I, I think for a strategy like momentum, you know, as I mentioned, winners and losers are high volatile stocks. So risk control becomes very important when you look at these types of strategies. One way is industry uh, neutral or beta neutral. Uh, or today we talked, one of the speakers talked about neutralizing with respect to multiple factors. I think those are quite important. And then you pull out uh, just the firm-specific aspects of it, which I think would do much better. I, I, you know, we're talking about momentum. and We haven't talked, as I said, there's so many other factors. I don't know if you've investigated. We've mentioned the fact that, you know, Vanguard has, what, four, five, six uh, factor Value, uh, profitability, minvol. Minvol, minimum volatility, which was so popular just four or five. I, it's my feeling, uh, I, I haven't done a, a very recent update, that most of them have way underperformed the S&P. Is that correct, Jeremy? Most, as you said, most factors have, have struggled. It, it obviously depends how you specify the factors. So each one will have their own tilt. Some might have small cap tilts. Some might have other things going on. Certainly, it's been a return of value this year. This is this, this is, year. This year finally, we, we get <laughs> we value investors get a little bit of relief yeah. <laughs> uh, with uh, with with all uh, that that's that's happening there. So, what do you think of? I mean, you're, 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 is there a, a future in momentum? Should I mean we we, we discussed this before, but we want to leave our listeners with. Uh, is there is there anything that an uh, an ordinary, although you know I'm not just talking about institutions, investor should do about his or her portfolio as a result of what we know about momentum investing? Yeah, I, I would not be a big fan of telling individual retail investors to be using these factors to form portfolios because again. Um, they're competing against institutions that have teams of people that can basically form portfolios that efficiently combine all the factors and, and then they manage the risk. So your question before, you know, worrying about tilting towards industries and other things, the, the people that do this professionally, um, they have a lot of factors, they form portfolios, and then they go back and do the risk analysis and make sure that they're not tilted to too much towards any given industry. So for a retail investor to do that, I think would be extremely difficult. And so they're likely to you know, load up on one particular characteristic and have a portfolio that as a result 
is going to be very inefficiently risky. So for a retail investor, my suggestion would be, you know, psychologically, I've, when I talk to people, they say, you know what, stocks, this has gone down. It's 10 to 50% cheaper than where it was. It's going to bounce back up. Empirical evidence does not uh, support that. So if you're using a screen, momentum may be one screen that you would use. I would, never, I would not advise individual investors to go solely based on that screen. You look at the momentum and then maybe sometimes if the earnings are also doing some fundamentals. So screen on that basis, but uh, be aware of the risk. But be cautious about this whole what goes down must come back up. Uh, th that is very, you know, that's not the best way to do it. So it's a cautionary tale as well as may, uh, maybe giving them some screens for this stock selection. We have our final few moments. If you say biggest unanswered questions for momentum research or other asset classes where you think it might apply, um, things like new, new asset classes, crypto, credit, other places where the research might be interesting. So in terms of momentum, a lot of people have looked at crypto, and crypto, frankly, just goes up and down. I, I think people have tried to apply crypto. It's a very, very short horizon to start with, and it's a very volatile asset. So individually, when you look at it, I don't think you'll find a whole lot. But it has been applied to other asset classes like commodities, bonds, uh, where people have just uh, replicated it. They are still there. So I think it's one of the screens that people want to look at, regardless of the asset. But Taking individual assets like crypto assets, I would uh, be very cautious. Professor, maybe I'll give you the final, final well, word. You know, on it's what's interesting your, because I, my mind wandered. You know, one of the oldest stock pickers uh, criteria used to be trend following and graphing and they trends. That's like the, the, uh, the very German, germinal source of momentum investing. They would only invest with the trend. Stay with the trend. I mean, it was one of the most popular, you know, 50, 75 years ago. Make the trend your friend. These are real old Wall Street maxims that really uh, the academic research showed had some truth to them. And, and something you also talk about in Stocks for Long Run, technical analysis, how to use that to manage risk and drawdowns. Uh, it's another, another thing we will find in, in the, the sixth edition coming up. Uh, we would like to thank our producers here on campus. We have Emily, Anton, we have a, a sound engineer. Uh, we have Chris Tukes on the soundboard back in Philadelphia. We've been broadcasting live from the Jacobs Levy Quant Conference here at the Marriott Marquis. Thanks for doing this on an annual basis. You've been listening to Behind the Markets. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 